Hey folks, my name is Darren Lapomi. I am a professor of nanoengineering and chemical engineering and material science at UC San Diego. I am also the associate dean for students in engineering. Uh, I have a PhD in chemistry and a postdoc in chemical engineering. Um, I am not in the same field as Jennifer Doudna, but uh, we have interacted with apparently a lot of the same um, people separated by a couple of degrees uh, and um, I thought it would be fun to kind of take a look at the book Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson whose subtitle is Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race and talk about not do like a conventional book review, but more of what it gets right and wrong about the way scientific research is done, especially at a university setting. So before we get started, there are a number of glossary terms that uh, people who have not been steeped in academic science might not be aware of. So here, uh, here is a quick rundown. So the types of people that work in labs fall into a few different categories. So you have undergrads who are generally going to be volunteers in a lab. Uh, you have transfer undergraduates, so those are students who did a two-year associate's degree at a community college and then come into a nominally four-year institution. Then you have students who start out at nominally four-year institutions. I say nominally because uh, especially in big public institutions like UC San Diego, it's not uncommon for students to spend a total of say five to six years getting their undergraduate degrees, especially if they are coming in as transfer students because of the way that prereqs work and so on. Anyway, garden path. Okay, then you have graduate students. So you have MS students and PhD students. Most students in the natural sciences, so that is students in biology, chemistry, and physics, do not apply for terminal MS degrees. They apply for the PhD degree, and then they get the MS degree on the way. In engineering it works differently where a, an MS degree is something that you apply directly to um, and it is you know you get a pay premium for having the MS degree and so forth but on the natural sciences side an MS degree is kind of something that um, someone might raise an eyebrow and say um, did you stop getting the PhD because they might not like understand. I'm not making any value judgment here. Um, it's just the way that, that it, it happens sometimes. Okay, so in the book, uh, Isaacson mentioned that Jennifer Doudna, when she started out as a student in, uh, in Harvard Medical School, did lab rotations before she finally settled, settled on Jack Shostak's group. And what is a rotation? A rotation is when a grad student comes in before they decide on a, the lab they're going to do their thesis research in, they spend the first either three, maybe three to six months rotating from lab to lab, usually three labs. And Isaacson describes it as um, the, the purpose of these rotations as to learn new techniques. Um, I would say that's not generally the, the purpose for the uh, rotation. Really, it's to see if the fit 
between the graduate student and the PI, who is the professor, the advisor, advisor, professor, PI, all kind of mean the same thing in this context, to see if that fit is good. Um, okay, then after PhD students, you have postdocs. A postdoc is like almost like an academic resident. So a postdoc is usually somebody who wants to pursue a career in academia or industrial R&D, um, but wants some a few more years of additional uh, training on top of, uh, of the PhD. And the, the, in a postdoc, you typically do that in a different institution from which you did your PhD. And what, uh, what happens is that the, uh, the postdoc advisor, sometimes they have funding, sometimes the, uh, the PhD student who's applying for a postdoc has to seek out that funding. Uh, and then ideally, that person be, uh, works in the lab of their postdoc advisor in a more independent way than they did as a graduate student because after all, they have a PhD. Now historically, a postdoc was something super special, like you got a postdoc fellowship in this famous person's lab and, uh, and you got to be kind of, uh, you got the best of both worlds. You got to do whatever you want on somebody else's dime. Now, because of this academic arms race where people have to get more and more and more and more training to get the same kinds of jobs as they did before, the postdoc is kind of like everybody has to do it, especially in the natural sciences like biology, chemistry, physics, um, where if you want to do something even close to R&D, either academically or uh, industrially, you pretty much have to do a postdoc. In engineering, it's not quite that way, although it's getting that way in the more bio-oriented fields like biology, some areas of chemical engineering. Um, it is less the case in electrical engineering and computer science. Material science, you generally need a postdoc. Mechanical engineering, somewhere, somewhere uh, in between. Okay, so that's a postdoc. So you'll remember that uh, Jennifer Doudna did her PhD work with Jack Shostak at Harvard and did her, uh, her postdoc with Thomas Check, Tom Check, at, uh, at University of Colorado at Boulder. Okay, after postdoc, you have something uh, that is a type of person, type of researcher who is not yet a professor, um, but more than a postdoc. So they are like employees, like full-time employees. Sometimes they have the title staff scientist or research assistant professor or something like that. Uh, these positions are sometimes known as permadoc positions. So uh, it's a, it, the term is meant to be funny as a pejorative. Um, it's kind of tragic in my opinion, where this academic arms race makes people getting more and more and more overtrained, overtrained, overtrained. And then it looks like, well, they can't call you a postdoc anymore because it violates university rules to have postdocs for more than five years. So you get another title and sometimes that title is called a permadoc. Again, pejoratively. All right, next up you have staff scientist, uh, or sorry, I just said that. Next up you have um, the professors. So the professors, these are tenure track people who do a combination of teaching and research. 
and service. So they do maybe research 60% of the time, teaching 30% uh, of the time, and service 10% of the time. Um, and for someone like me who's gone into administration, the service role is uh, is expanded. Uh, the teaching role is is reduced. The research um, hopefully is about the same, but probably honestly going to end up being a little reduced as well. So professors have three different levels: assistant professor, which at most places is untenured; um, associate professor, so uh, between assistant and associate professor, you get tenure. Uh, in most systems, not Harvard and MIT, but they're outliers for a lot of different reasons. Uh, at Harvard and MIT, you're not tenured until you get full professor or just full professor or just professor. So in some places like the University of California system, full professor itself has different levels. And uh, as my friend uh, Charles Dong at the University of Delaware said, there are different levels of fullness for a professor. Um, so anyway, uh, after you get full professor, you get sometimes university professor or an endowed chair or something. And then maybe your university has like distinguished professor, university professor, something like that. And then when you retire and you keep your office, it's called an emeritus professor. Okay. And then the level Beyond that, and we've seen a lot of these people in Codebreaker, is a Nobel laureate. Just kidding, they're not any kind of special category, although they might think that they're some kind of uh, special category. So uh, Jack Shostak won the Nobel Prize. This is Jennifer Doudna's PhD advisor in uh, 2009, and her postdoc advisor, Tom Check, won the, P won the Nobel Prize when he was quite young, actually, by the standards of the Nobel Prize in 1989, the year that, uh, that Doudna started her PhD. Okay, so, uh, all right, what, uh, so those are the people, that's the, the cast of characters, the types of titles that people that do academic research uh, uh, have. And uh, what does an academic researcher do? Well, they go into the lab, usually, you know, nominally for uh, a grad student is working 40 hours a week, depending on how the university accounts for things, they might say 20 hours a week, they get paid for 20, but really they work 40 hours a week, but really, really they work 50 or 60 hours a week. Um, and and this, this type of, uh, and ideally, the people who do research are uh, are kind of self-selected to <laughs> to be like the kind of person who wants to be in the, in the lab when they're not in the lab. They wish they were in the lab. They're always thinking about their research. They're kind of this type A personality that tends to be in academic research groups. Okay, who? pays for the research. So research is expensive. And we think about, you know, when we watch a movie, we see these highfalutin labs with all of this equipment and shiny stuff and metal walls and a lot of glass. Really, comparatively, uh, academic research labs are quite crappy. Often they haven't been renovated since 1985, and they're dusty and there's a lot of like acid stains on the bench tops and the fume hoods are dirty and they make noise um, and uh, maybe less so in biological research where you want everything to be you know free of, of proteins and adventitious nucleic acids all over the place so you 
you know, bleach and ethanol, everything. But anyway, okay, so research is expensive, even if it's not being spent on the infrastructure. What is the most expensive part of the research enterprise? And that is the personnel. The same thing in any corporate structure, the people are the most expensive part. So let's say that a graduate student earns a stipend of about thirty dollars to $35,000 a year, which is not very much, especially given the places where universities tend to be, Boston, the Bay Area, uh, New York City, Los Angeles, San Diego, Austin, Texas, these, uh, Denver, Colorado, these places tend to be quite expensive. So um, $35,000 is not a lot of money. In addition to the $35,000, you also have to pay, and I say you, meaning uh, the professor, but ultimately the taxpayer, <coughs> has to pay tuition remission. And tuition remission is a benefit paid to the student by the university in exchange for not having to pay uh, pay the tuition out of grant money. So it's some kind of form of money laundering. Um, so you can't charge tuition to a federal grant, but you can charge tuition remission, which is uh, a way of kind of getting around that, uh, that rule, which is a very uh, well, a uh, poorly kept secret, but one that people generally uh, turned a blind eye to. Okay, so that's another 20K. We're up to like 50, 55K now. Then you have the benefits. Uh, so health insurance, another few K. Uh, then you have the instrumentation usage. Sometimes you have equipment, you have publication and travel charges, and you have materials and supplies like pipette tips, Petri dishes, ethanol, acetone, solvents, buffers, all kinds of stuff that's used in biomedical research. Then you're up to something like 70k in uh, direct costs, but then the university charges approximately 50 to 60 percent of direct costs on top of that money as overhead or indirect costs, which pay for the excuse me, the air conditioner and the landscaping and the administrative staff. And that brings a total up to about 100K per year per student or postdoc. So research is really expensive. And most of that money comes from, in the US system, comes from tax payers through federal funding agencies, the largest of which, uh, at least that funds academic research, is the National Institutes of Health, which has uh, something around a $40 billion uh, budget. Um, most of that goes to extramural research, which is spent outside of the NIH uh, facility in Bethesda, Maryland. And, uh, and then you have uh, National Science Foundation, which is probably around like 10 billion. Then the Department of Energy, it's a little harder. I'm not sure I know the number for that. Then Department of Defense. And there are various different mechanisms for Defense Department to fund uh, academic uh, research. But for example, the Air Force Office of Scientific Research has a budget of about $500 million per year. So. Every three years, we uh, apply for, or every year, maybe every couple months, we apply for a new grant. And then every few years, if we're lucky enough to get it, we reply, we'll apply for a renewal or continued support in some function.
Okay, now when Jack Shostak, who was Jennifer Doudna's PhD uh, advisor, um, won the Nobel Prize in 2009, he won it with two other scientists um, for their work on uh, substructures of chromosomes. So uh, I think uh, a function of, of telomeres. Um, and somebody did the calculation that over the course of those three individuals' independent careers, they got a total of $32 million from the NIH in terms of grant funding. Now that work has led to a lot of very important biomedical uh, research, and some of that money actually went into training Jennifer Doudna, who you know won her own Nobel Prize in 2020. Some of the other money comes from private organizations and companies. Uh, so um, biomedical research companies, um, a lot of uh, labs in the physical sciences and engineer engineering are funded by uh, telecommunications companies as well as defense contractor uh, companies. So that is money that was once tax money and then uh, ends up back in uh, in publicly or ends up in research, uh, which is formally now privately funded. You can also have philanthropic donors. So whenever you see the name of a university building uh, or a center that's called the, the so-and-so uh, laboratory for integrated science and engineering and biomedicine or something, that uh, some of that money goes toward re research infrastructure. It's possible that some of it goes to endowed chairs. It's possible that some of it goes to um, other, uh, other types of expense categories. Uh, a, a university research lab can also have individuals who come in with their own funding. So these are people who, uh, students who won some competitive fellowship, either from the National Institutes of Health or the NSF uh, or a private organization. All right, so uh, what are some of the characteristics of a professor that, uh, that were highlighted in the book? So Isaacson describes Jennifer Doudna as being tightly scheduled but always available. And what does that mean? So oftentimes a professor will be, uh, their schedule will be scheduled um, for like maybe five to eight hours a day or three to eight hours a day, depending on the amount of service responsibility that person is doing. Um, and uh, But in between meetings or when there are long stretches of, of no meetings, typically our doors will be open. And the reason we come to work, even though we barely work in the lab, if at all, is because we want our PhD students, undergraduates, and postdocs working in our lab to be able to uh, ask us questions. And uh, oftentimes we get lonely in here and <laughs> really just want human company, uh, even though we could probably spend most of our time working from home as COVID has taught us that we can basically do most of our jobs from home, but that kind of lab community suffers. Okay, when uh, Jennifer Doudna was tempted to change her major from chemistry to French, 
uh, one of her uh, advisors said with a, something like, with a chemistry degree, you can do anything. With a French degree, you can teach French. Um, uh, I, I think that's a little bit uh, not correct, <laughs> but um, I think on either side of that, that issue, um, I think an engineering degree is probably a little bit more immediately hireable than a chemistry or a physics or a biology degree. Um, and I say that having a chemistry degree myself, um, but I, we were also um, told that Doudna's interest in the humanities and her father Martin Doudna's interest in the humanities and reading books and classics um, permitted her to have a more expansive humanistic view of the implications of the work that she was doing that had a more let's say uh, that had a moral valence to it so what could have a, a greater moral valence than the idea that we should that we can and possibly should be able to alter the gene line or the germ line in order to program uh, desirable or, or at least exclude undesirable un, uh, un characteristics like fatal genetic diseases. Like if you could cure Huntington's disease just like that, it wouldn't be that easy. But what if you could, should you? Or cystic fibrosis, um, these types of diseases or certain types of cancer that are very highly correlated to, uh, to genetics. Should you be able to do that? And Jennifer Doudna believes that her training, her interest in the humanities allowed her to see a bigger, uh, bigger perspective. Okay, so we were talking about uh, whether or not professors worked in the lab. Honestly, I have not been in the lab for any significant amount of time in several weeks. Um, I know that makes me probably a bad professor, but it is very much not uncommon. Um, however, there is significant evidence that, uh, that Doudna's mentors, uh, Shostak and Czech, actually uh, were in the lab a lot. So, um, so Jack Shostak, um, who I didn't really have any connection with, I went to a seminar with him when there was this uh, Origin of Life initiative uh, at Harvard and he was in the audience. And my advisor, George Whitesides, gave a talk on uh, the use of uh, evaporating ponds as high salt dehydrating conditions for the formation of biomolecules or biopolymers in particular. Um, and, uh, and Jack Shostak said in the Q&A session, um, I'm finding your hypothesis a little vague. And then George said, I can't imagine it being any vaguer, um, which is also a vague response. And I tended to agree with Jack. Uh, in that particular exchange, um, but that that is my one memory of at least being in the same room with uh, Jack Shostak. So anyway, um, and then Tom Check. Tom Check is somebody who um, has he's very much available on YouTube. You can find these things. Um, he 
contributed to this uh, this program called uh, Making the Right Moves, which is a guidebook for new professors who come in and want to do good work. It's how to navigate uh, university life as somebody who comes in for, uh, into the work for the first time. And, uh, and he had a YouTube video, which was very um, influential on me as I started my career. And one of his quotes, I'm going to, I'm going to quote from a quote um, that uh, from the uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute uh, website um, on the Making the Right Moves uh, little booklet. Um, more than little, a big booklet. He said, you should build a research group by being in the lab as much as possible. The assistant professors who don't get tenure are the ones who spend all of their time in the office instead of in the lab. Tenure means that after four to six years, you've done enough research where they basically can't fire you unless you do something really, uh, really bad. Um, yeah, so, uh, so she came from an environment that made her very much accessible to her students. Um, it didn't, she didn't say specifically, Isaacson didn't say specifically how much time she spent in the lab, but you did get the impression that she spent a lot of time mentoring her students. And one tends to believe that knowing what we, uh, what we do know about, uh, about Professor Doudna from uh, interviews and, and, and so on. All right. Um, there are some other interesting vignettes in there about scientists' personalities. Um, so uh, she recalled a story to Isaacson about walking by Barbara McClintock, who won the Nobel Prize uh, for, uh, for parts of basically discovering parts of chromosomes and how chromosomes operate and, uh, and not saying anything. Um, and this was at a conference. And I've had that same like experience um, where you really desperately want to introduce yourself to this famous scientist, and probably they would love to talk to you, um, especially if you're, you know, you're at a conference or you, you work on the same campus. And uh, I had this experience with Edward O. Wilson, who was a uh, famous entomologist who, um, who wrote the book Sociobiology and the Diversity of Life, coined the word biodiversity, was an expert in ants, won uh, multiple uh, uh, Pulitzer Prizes for his scientific writing. And one time I walked by uh, E.O. Wilson on the sidewalk and I said, hi, Professor Wilson, knowing that he was a little bit hard of hearing and he didn't look up at all. And I'm sure it's because he couldn't hear me. So um, I don't know. I had the guts to do it, but I didn't get any uh, any satisfaction out of that particular interaction. There was uh, a little bit of a, of a kind of uncomfortable personal history that uh, Isaacson relayed about the failure of Doudna's first marriage, um, which, uh, which he, I don't know if she attributed, but he attributed it to the fact that the husband wasn't quite as ambitious as Jennifer Doudna and, um, and that she wanted to work, you know, late and couldn't think about anything but science and he, he really uh, was into other things. 
Okay, then uh, there were two very important postdocs who ended up doing the foundational work in the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, uh, gene editing system, and that uh, those people are uh, Blake uh, Wiedenheft and Martin Yenick. And uh, Blake Wiedenheft was a, as a postdoc candidate, was described to not have very good letters. <laughs> now, um, that's interesting uh, <laughs> because, I mean, he helped to make some of the most important biomedical discoveries of the early 21st century. And uh, what was described, um, so you, you kind of see this a lot. This is a repeating theme in hiring academic people where a kind of a, a kind of an unusual personality type who spends all of their time, uh, their free time, um, collecting uh, biological samples, for example, in Dr. Wiedenheft's native Montana and, uh, and, and doing like field experimentation kind of independently as a teenager and as a, as a, uh, as a child. Um, and, uh, Maybe in their PhD work, they, they didn't get the right project. Maybe they got a bad advisor, like the advisor is kind of like a negligent advisor. And as a result, they didn't publish a lot of papers and maybe didn't get good, great letters, even though they have it in them to be a very powerful researcher. And, uh, and, and Dr. Wiedenheft, uh, uh, the postdoc ended up, you know, joining Professor Doudna's lab and ended up being amazing. Um, so then you had uh, Martin Yenick, who is an international uh, postdoc from uh, Central Europe, I believe, uh, uh, what is now um, what was then Czechoslovakia. Um, and one thing that is not always appreciated is just how important international students and postdocs are to the research enterprise in the United States. So um, I think in some cases this actually, the, the fact that this isn't well known serves our community well, because I think if this were used as a political football, it would be a very bad thing. So at given institutions, you might have grad student populations be 50% international, and the postdocs might be more than 50% international. So from Europe and Asia, we have a lot of fantastic grad students and postdocs. And uh, so another well-kept but open secret in, in academia is that they're paid by, for the most part, university research grants, which are paid for by the American taxpayers. And a lot of those individuals will stay in the US, but a lot of them won't. So I'm totally okay with that. I'm totally for, uh, for scientific educational diplomacy. You know, if you zoom out and look at the United States, what are our best exports? Uh, commercial aircraft and, uh, and um, university education and corn and, so and soybeans. So if you look at our, our, some of our best uh, exports, you know, we do a lot of diplomacy. Like look at all of the uh, people in engineering firms and in positions of leadership at, uh, at companies in other, other countries often did their training 
in the U.S. So I think it's it's important to uh, to keep in mind, but also kind of a good thing that uh, that it's not uh, that politically it's kind of under the radar. Um, all right. Okay, a little bit about Professor Doudna's management style. So I mentioned that Isaacson characterized her as being tightly scheduled, but also available. Also, she had a hiring style of wanting input from current members so that they would be comfortable with the new hires. So rather than her just kind of grilling the candidate about what they did as an undergraduate or uh, in their research lab or as a graduate student if she's hiring postdocs. Uh, she wanted them to really spend a day with the research lab and get an idea of how things would go. There have been cases where I have been totally sold on a candidate and then they, uh, then they interact with the lab and the lab members come back to me the next day and said, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think you want to hire this person. And then we, uh, we, we drop it. I think it's uh, academic research is a little bit like, I mean, it's unusual in, its, uh, in that it's not one task that you're hiring the person for. You're hiring them to be part of a collaborative team. You're hiring them to think independently, to do a lot of writing, to come to you with ideas. Um, and this goes, uh, goes along with, uh, with Doudna's, um, her other characteristic that in, when it comes to group management and hiring is that she, Isaacson said that she wanted to work with people who are independent and came to her for advice, but not necessarily day-to-day -day guidance. And I would say not even week-to-week -week guidance. Um, she also has a big lab. A lot of grad students and postdocs want to do their research in her group. She's very well funded. So maybe, uh, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's between 20 and 40, I'm sure, uh, of people affiliated with the lab. And the question is, you know, can you give your best to everyone um, or do you count on interactions of people within the lab to do the education and training of the younger uh, of the younger generation. Okay. So Isaacson has has biographized uh, many different uh, innovators. So uh, he has books on Einstein and Steve Jobs and Benjamin Franklin. Um, interestingly, Jennifer Doudna is one of the few women that he's profiled. I believe the first woman that he did a whole book about, although The Innovators has, uh, has a, a long section on Ada Lovelace, for example. Um, but anyway, um, a discussion for another, uh, another time. Um, but he likes to wax a little bit um, about the nature of scientific innovation and technological uh, progress. And this is true in this book in the Codebreaker as well. So um, 
He describes CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing as being um, at odds with the linear model of science. And what is the linear model of science? So the linear model of science was described by Venivar Bush, who is the director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development, which was the precursor to the National Science Foundation, but it was active during World War II. So Bush had a role in the Manhattan Project as an, as an administrator and was also an accomplished uh, scientist uh, himself. And he wrote a famous pamphlet, he wrote a famous brief to President Truman at the end of World War II that said, it was called the, uh, the Endless Frontier, Science the Endless Frontier, um, that basically said that fundamental discovery-oriented science leads to technologies and that the directionality is always in that way. So, uh, so you always have basic science, curiosity, you know, that poster you see in fifth grade on the wall of your, uh, the wall of your classroom that says observation, hypothesis, gathering of data, testing the hypothesis, reevaluating the hypothesis in the face of data, and then going back to observation and so on. And you keep repeating this until you get closer and closer to the, uh, to the, to the truth or, or, or exclude more and more uh, uh, competing hypotheses for what's happening. Okay. And Isaacson, so he challenges that, uh, that the notion that CRISPR is an example of linear, the linear model. So you look at uh, the, the earliest bits of evidence that this could be used as a gene editing tool. You had uh, Francisco Mojica and Alicante, uh, Spain, who first discovered the CRISPR system. You notice uh, in bacteria that, um, that he hypothesized but didn't really have the proof yet that it was, uh, that it evolved as a uh, viral defense mechanism, so a, a defense mechanism against vir uh, viruses. And, uh, and then you had, um, so that is kind of basic science, and then uh, Doudna and Fang Zhang and others found out how it worked, and then Doudna is really credited for exploiting how it works into, uh, or, um, uh, or Doudna and Charpentier are are accredited with transforming it from a, from a discovery to a technology, like using it as gene editing. And okay, you can kind of see that follows some linear progression, but then he throws a wrench into the, into the works and mentions how this was actually known from industry, namely the yogurt <laughs> culture, the dairy industry, where it was known that bacteria had these, that yogurt bacteria, yogurt cultures, had these tandem uh, or had these uh, short palindromic repeats in them, um, the, uh, the SPRs of CRISPRs, and it was sort of hypothesized that, that, that they had to do with, um, you know, keeping viruses out of the yogurt. <laughs> and so, but that was a technology, right? They were trying to make yogurt. They didn't care about the CRISPR sequences in these bacteria, but a lot of the, the basic knowledge came from like dairy chemistry, dairy biochemistry. So that's an example where there's an interplay between an application and basic science and you you stir it up and then you get more application and more basic science as a result of that interplay and there are you know if you look at it even more and more 
closely, uh, you find that a lot of application, a lot of science is, is based on something that was originally an application. It was known, for example, that mold on bread destroyed bacterial plaques in petri dishes, right? That was something that was discovered. Uh, you know, penicillin was discovered that way. Nobody knew the mechanism of a beta-lactam antibiotic. They didn't even know the penicillin had a beta-lactam unit in it, and they didn't even know what the structure of penicillin was at all uh, when they first discovered this. So uh, at some point, you just need to do something. You need to put something in a bottle or in a yogurt container, and then you see what happens down the line. So I think this linear model of science is really um, kind of I idealized. It doesn't really happen uh, that way. And if you look at the, uh, you know, the other examples, these are closer to what Isaacson has written about before, the invention of silicon transistors. Of course, it's very closely tied to the development of quantum mechanics. But really, um, you know, if you look at the first silicon devices, you got a lot of the physics out of like having actually done the experiment. And then you use basic science to study the device that you built. And this happens over and over and over in computer science, in robotics. Um, and one, could, one would argue that a lot of social science and economics and psychology is based on stuff that started as an application. So you build something first and then you study how it works. You build the internet first and then you study how it, how it changes people's brains. You, uh, you build Bitcoin and then you understand uh, or, or uh, you build cryptocurrencies in general and you, and you try to understand how the economics of them work. So it's not a, you know, a clean delineation from one side to the other. Okay, um, so there is an another, another big theme in the book is the role of competition in science. So, uh, of course, um, Jennifer Doudna was in competition with Fang Zhang from the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. Um, they both have claim to certain parts of the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system, and there's a lot of, uh, there's, I'm not going to get into the, the debate here because I'm not well enough informed about it beyond what's already in Isaacson's book. Um, and uh, he chose to focus it around uh, Jennifer Doudna and um, and okay, so we'll we'll leave it at that. But what about the role of competition? Um, so competition in science re is related to the larger area of the philosophy of science. So how does science actually work? And Richard Feynman, who was a uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist at Caltech, uh, said that something like scientists need the philosophy of science as much as birds need ornithology. And haha, ha, that's kind of funny. But it, um, it is worth, I think, if we're going to be professional scientists to kind of step back and examine how we do our business, even though we kind of do it automatically like are we are we really using that you know that flow chart from the fifth 
fifth grade that I mentioned earlier. So um, in the book, Tom Check and Jack Shostak were uh, characterized by Isaacson as having that sense of competition and collegiality that defines uh, science. Um, it seems certainly seems based on published interviews that I've seen them give that that's that's probably true. Um, then there's the idea of is competition is it is it is it part of should it be on that fifth fifth grade chart like should the sense of competition be in, in the chart? So if you look back at the history of the philosophy of science, there are a couple of big names. There's Karl Popper um, who what who emphasized the notion of falsification. So you have a lot of different theories, you have a lot of different um, potential mechanisms that could explain an observed phenomenon. And then you do experiments that are well controlled and you one by one you exclude or falsify these competing hypotheses until you, you, uh, you hone the right one. And uh, then you had uh, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote the book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in the mid uh, 20th century, which sort of took the opposite kind of tack, which said that what we're really doing is we're changing paradigms by, um, by really supporting hypotheses as opposed to falsifying false hypotheses. We're like buttressing ones that that we that are new and that displace the old model uh, through these uh, quote paradigm shifts that he uh, that he um, talked about. Very recently, a couple of years ago, there was this book uh, by Michael Strevens, uh, a a British um, uh, philosopher of science, who wrote the book The Knowledge Machine. And uh, what Strevens argued is that science is not completely objective, and uh, and came up with this um, iron rule of explanation, which I'll I'll read here. I'll paraphrase. So scientists are to participate in the scientific enterprise. They must uncover or generate new evidence to argue with, and conduct all disputes with reference to empirical evidence alone. The key to science's success is that it channels hope, anger envy, ambition, resentment, all the fires fuming in the human heart to one end, the production of empirical evidence. So in Strevin's kind of third way here, he's actually importing elements of human nature into the scientific method, which is which kind of blows your mind because you think of science as being super analytical and and a quest toward perfection of explanation and clean results and and uh, and truth and objectivity but what he's saying is that humans use their drive their hope anger envy ambition sense of competition with others in order to generate empirical evidence that they can use to argue that's his word argue and conduct all disputes with reference to this empirical evidence. Now, what I have found, um, and I guess, okay, how does it apply to Jennifer Doudna? Were Doudna and Zhang, did they become, uh, did they produce better results as a result of competition? Maybe, 
maybe it did. <laughs> maybe they did. Um, I think there's another quote from uh, Edward O. Wilson who said that in his career he was blessed by having brilliant enemies. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if, uh, if Doudna and Zhang consider themselves enemies. Probably, it's probably overdoing it. But, um, but one can sort of see how this might apply to, uh, to them. Um, that, uh, that maybe CRISPR-Cas9 technology was accelerated as a result of competition. Interestingly, is competition desirable? I have tried to spend the last 10 years of my academic career trying to avoid competing directly with other research groups in the areas in which I work. And the reason is, if you are in a big field, Jennifer Doudna says in the book that it's less risky because you're in a field that everyone knows what the, what the boundary conditions are in the field. And also there will be people there to cite your work. Um, and there will be people who know how to review it too for papers and, and grants applications. I would challenge that a little bit because if you are doing something where there are no competitors and you're smart about it, um, you can actually you can actually have more freedom to operate. You can have a, a monopoly on that field for a given time. And as long as people, as long as you can convince people that it's interesting, it is actually much easier to get grants and papers. Whereas there's a lot of risk for being in an established field because, um, because you either have to do it really, really well, you have to do it like the best. Uh, well, there's no other. You, I mean, to get, <laughs> if you don't do it really well, you're not gonna get funding and you're not gonna get papers. If you're doing something that nobody else is doing, and this is something that my PhD advisor, George Whitesides, used to say, doing something that nobody else is doing, then he said, one, you don't have to do it very well, haha, and two, you don't have to, to read the literature, haha. So, um, you know, it's a joke, but you can kind of see where it's going. I would argue, however, that by creating this, by being one of the, uh, pioneers, if not the pioneer of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, that, uh, that Professor Doudna is actually having it both ways, in a good way. So um, she was able to monopolize this field, almost, not quite, there's the issue of Funk Jung, um, but also uh, be close enough to people like Shostak, Czech, George Church and so on, uh, who were in adjacent areas that could support this kind of, of RNA-based technology because there is the background intellectual milieu in which she could work and have people understand the significance of it, even though other people weren't, not many other people were doing exactly that. All right, with that, uh, thank you very much for your, uh, your attention. I would uh, highly recommend this book as, as uh, an accurate portrayal of the way that academic scientific research is done. I think Walter Isaacson uh, got it 
right. Um, I think it's pretty unusual that, uh, you know, words like grants and grad students and postdocs and and uh, working in the lab and how people actually do experiments actually makes it into a book as wildly uh, successful as this is and by an author as well uh, well regarded as Walter Isaacson. Um, you know, if I had to change anything, the first thing I would do is put Jennifer Doudna's name toward the top and not in the subtitle. You know, why did Benjamin Franklin and Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci get to be in the main title and not the subtitle? Uh, I don't know. Jennifer Doudna is not as famous yet. Maybe he'll rethink it in a future edition. All right. Take care. Uh, hope you enjoyed this or found it interesting.